On the new DMV Sports Roundtable, it's a move Wizards fans have been waiting for. Team President Ernie Grunfeld has been fired after 16 seasons. The team did not make the playoffs for half of those seasons. We'll talk to Wizards Radio 24-7 host Brian Albin about what could be next for the team and who might be in charge going forward. Wizards owner Ted Leonsis managed to take a little attention away from Bryce Harper's return to Nats Park. With that Ernie announcement, the slugger from Philadelphia now was met with this atmosphere Tuesday night at Nats Park. some booze going on there. Shortstop Trey Turner in the meantime will miss a lot of time after a pitch fractured his right index finger while he was trying for a bunt. That game was pretty terrible for Nats fans. It was an 8-2 loss. I'm Dimitri Sotis in studio with me, one of our three regular voices. You're used to hearing our security guard who eats, drinks, and sleeps sports, Jamal Bowens. Follow us on Twitter at DMV Sports Round 1. We start with Jamal's thoughts on the departure of Ernie Grunfeld. Jamal, you were saying hallelujah, right? You've been asking for Ernie Grunfeld to leave town or at least leave that job for quite a long time. Look, I wanted to come in here and pop a bottle of Moet and, and <laughs> blaze up a, a couple of uh, Cubans or something. I know we can't do that in here. <laughs> no. But it, it, it's a celebration. I mean, to me, it's like you said, since we've started this podcast, started this show, I have, and Brian, anytime you've been on the show, I have not been shy about uh, saying what I felt about Ernie and, and his job here or what his what he did here. I think it is maybe 10 years or so overdue, but it got it, it's done. It got to a point where, for whatever reason, Ted was not addressing it. It got to a point that he couldn't ignore it anymore. It was too glaring of an issue. And when you have a team that a couple of years back, you're one game away from going to the Eastern Conference Finals, Last year, you slipped down to the eighth seed, and now this year, subsequently, you're out completely, and you, you, you're in lottery discussions. That'll definitely get an owner's uh, attention very quickly, that your team is backsliding, regressing very quickly, and if you don't get a hold of it, uh, you'll be the Knicks. Well, I, I think it takes a little bit more to become the Knicks. <laughs> I mean, after, if you keep sliding like that, if you don't do anything about it, now they have much more uh, going for them than, than the Knicks do. But if, if you starting with Ted, exactly, and not uh, not having James Dolan, well, this year, that, 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 that helps. helps. You know, but we have we have two legit stars, uh, Troy Brown looks like a promising guy. We're looking like we probably, I'm assuming top ten. Pick possibly. Yeah, they're the on. Lottery. They're on their way. On the, the on the season ended that. today. I believe they would have the fast track to the eighth overall pick. Um, but they with, just had. They just had to show off and, and beat the Nuggets. Yeah, I they, mean, you can't even tank right. Well, you know, I, I don't think there was any value at this point in this yeah. team tanking just because you, you weren't going to get to the bottom six. Right. And with what they did with the NBA draft lottery this year, the odds are flatter now. So, you know, okay. where you used to have a 25% chance at the number one pick if you had the worst record, now you only have a 14% chance. Wow. And so the teams, you know, in the middle in that six through yeah. 10 range, they all have a little bit better odds while the teams at the top have worse. But I mean that that's that's a whole yeah, separate I conversation. To, I would, yeah, because I would love to see that done away with completely. At least let's have it out in front, like they used to do the old DC lottery with the ping pong balls on TV. Do that or go the route of football. The the you, the first pick goes to the team with with the worst record, and you go down from there. The the fact that. 
like you said, teams that are in the middle or you know don't have as bad a record as uh, the Knicks, the Hawks, and, and whoever else. Those those teams obviously need the Zions and R.J. Barrett and whoever you you would have in the top five, and I think that it's deserved that. If you have that bad of a record, then you're in much more need of help than somebody else. And you should just go ahead and just give them the top pick. The only reason against that is just if you make it that simple, then the tanking gets worse. Because That's true. If, you don't, if all you have to do to get that top pick is be intentionally bad, yeah. you'll have four, five, six teams every year competing to be the worst. And that hurts your product too much. Yeah, but. and that's the problem. You can't, there has to be a way or try to find a way to try to deter teams from tanking. I'm not sure how you would go about that because you would have to determine are you losing on purpose? Is this, you know, are you really just that bad? And that's very difficult to do. Uh, if there was a way and some sort of uh, rules or sanctions or penalties that you could do that to deter it, and then we could go ahead and have that. But yeah, you make a very good point that you don't really have that in the NFL. So it's a little safer uh, to go that route with the NFL. For some reason, in, in the NBA, you know, tanking is in vogue. Yeah, I think it just has, you know, when you when you talk about the NFL side of things, it's a 16-week season. Exactly. So, you know, when you're five weeks into the year, if you're one in four, right. you're not thinking about pulling the plug as much as you're saying, yeah. hey, let's just run off a couple wins. We That's can get true. back into the break. Very true. With an 82-game 82 82, season, yeah. you fall out of it quickly. If you're done by all-star break, you're like, well, Exactly. Whatever. Then that back half of the season just gets It doesn't mean anything. Now, uh, before we look ahead, Brian, your thoughts on Ernie Grunfeld finally leaving? Was it a, you know, uh, a long time in coming? Was it uh, an if, if, you know, not if, but when or, or, or what? So I, I think that a long time coming is probably the easiest way to say it. I mean, the thing with Ernie that you have to give him credit for is you know he found ways to get them competitive more often than not you know half of his seasons in this role with the wizards the wizards were a playoff team mm-hmm. if you look at the bullets history from the end of the 70s until you know ernie got there in 2003 there were far fewer playoff seasons than what they had with mm-hmm. ernie at the helm at the same time yes if you're trying to win a championship i think it had become clear that the direction that ernie tended to move in which which was looking at the short term and just trying to be as competitive as possible in the moment. Mm-hmm. What we often had happen with Ernie was whether he struck out on a draft pick or, you know, made a couple free agent signings that didn't work out. Right. Then he would do a good job of cleaning up that mess. Exactly. But all it did was create a new mess that you couldn't fix longer down the road. And so this gives you an opportunity with John Wall out for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. If there was ever a time you're not making the playoffs with a team that you intended to pay into the luxury tax for, it was a pretty easy decision business-wise for Ted. It's never easy to take away someone's job, who you've worked with ever since you took over the team. But at the same time, if you're looking at results, it was most certainly time. And now, I think the question that's most interesting when you look at you know the upcoming search and who they're going to look at i think what'll be the interesting question is 
is Ted going to hire somebody because he has a vision in his mind of where he wants the Wizards to be and the candidates that sort of speak to that role Mm -hmm. is who he'll be more interested in? Or is he just hiring based on who the search firm that he's bringing in tells him this is your best bet? And does he then just give that guy free reign? Because if that's the case... Then things get interesting. Then you wonder who might be going out of town. Are we going for a full rebuild? Or are we still trying to be competitive right now with what we have? I mean, those are the questions that just immediately pop into my mind uh, that, you know, whenever you have a change in direction, what is the preceding fallout that's going to come out over the next few months once that hire is actually made? Yeah, I I think it's from what for what they have. Uh, it's enough for someone to work with that you don't know. You don't have to go into a total rebuild. You have Wall. Yeah, he'll probably be gone for another season. Bradley Beal has emerged into in Brown superstar status at this point. And then uh, he's probably going to be All NBA this year. Yes. I mean that that's that's legit. He, he has ascended to a, a, a new height. Maybe you know some could argue beyond. Uh, wall at this point and and you could argue both sides and I would probably lean a little further you know a little more to Beal based on health at this point but you have Troy Brown when you finally play him Troy Brown plays well you have to find a way to bring back Thomas Bryant you can't let young bigs like that walk depending on what they want you know Sato's extended so you have him depending on what the market for Jabari Parker or Bobby Porter's yields, I would lean Parker first. You know, I would like Porter's back, but Parker has really showed that he could produce. I would think that, see, and I would think that Ernie seemed like he wanted to, he was dead set on trying to re-sign Ariza, re-sign Green. I think you need to go to the younger folks, and you have that in place. You don't necessarily have to have somebody that's uh, been a GM for 10-plus years. I look at what Elton Brand has done in Philly with, with pretty much next to no experience. And I think he's done a hell of a job in building around. You get a, a Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, uh, Wilson Chandler, and you're adding pieces around your two stars. You bite the bullet with Fultz, but that was already in the cards. So if you find someone like that that can put things together, there's a lot of different ways you can go. I think the only I've heard Ben Standick say it both ways is that Ted is looking for someone uh, like the uh, the guy who succeeded McPhee as an in-house replacement. Then you refer to the firm that he's bringing. It, it, Ted's going to have to have a balance on how much influence. Uh, he wants the outside firm to have. How much is it a 50-50 between his vision and what they come back with? And this also coincides with Memphis is also searching for a GM at this point. So the Trajan Langdons and, and some of the other names that you might hear come up, uh, they're both jockeying for position with a lot of those guys. But this is this is not a destination that you don't this is a destination that you might want to come to. You have there's pieces to work with in Washington. You may be hamstrung by the cap a little bit, but for me, if I look at it from a GM's perspective, it's an interesting job. You you can do something with what they have. You're not gonna walk into most places that have two all stars in place already. Would anybody like to see Pops Mensobansu as the next GM of the Wizards? I wouldn't I, I would like I said 
Pops is is the, the GM of the Go Go, and he's had a year under his belt. Uh, you probably follow them a little. I, I watch, but you probably follow them, you know, a little more f- closely than most. Well, as a, as a former colonial, I would like to say yes. <laughs> um, but at the same time, the the G League and the NBA are so Very different, different yeah. just in terms of, you know, the G League, you're balancing way more players in and out throughout right. the course of a season. And you're not, you have a different build, essentially, just because of how different the two leagues are with their financial situations and, every, mm-hmm. and the fact that the G League is a feeder league to yeah. the NBA. Um, there are going to be a lot of interesting interesting candidates out there. I, I've heard the names Chauncey Billups uh, mm-hmm. already floated around. Malik Rose, assistant GM in Detroit, uh-huh. played a long time for the San Antonio yes. Spurs. Um, but I've also heard the more veteran name out there of Danny Ferry. Danny Ferry, mm-hmm. of course, was the architect of the Atlanta team that got the one yeah. seed the year the Wizards lost to them in the semifinals 2015. Somebody mentioned Hinky also. I'm not sure how... So I don't think Hinky's getting back into (laughs) the NBA, Um, but I think what is interesting about whoever that person is, you have to think of it because it's all going to start up top with Ted. Mm -hmm. And so is Ted going to be willing to hire somebody if he articulates a vision of, I think you need a complete teardown and we need to rebuild this thing all from scratch? Or is he going to lean towards somebody who says, I can work with what we have here. I need to tinker around the edges and I might have to do things here and here. But I believe that we have enough to build an immediate competitor based on what we have in-house. That's the more interesting question to me, because as I look at this thing in my mind personally, I hate to say it, but whoever's walking in is walking into a mess. You are walking into a situation where going into next year, assuming Dwight Howard picks up his player's option, oh, boy. And you he, have he would be five, stupid not to. He would be stupid not to. He's going to. Yeah. You're going to be talking about five guys under contract for $92 million. Jeez. That means you'll, you know, based on cap projections, be $17 million under the cap mm. to fill out 10 more roster spots. Yeah. And we're talking about we want to bring back a Thomas Bryant, but like he's a restricted free agent. Right. Teams are going to bid for him. Oh, we yeah. want to bring back a Thomas Sadoransky, but he's a restricted free agent. Teams are going to bid for him. So like the 17 million that they can have in space if they renounce all the necessary players' rights, like Jeff Green, Trevor Ariza, and mm-hmm. all that. Even then, that 17 million will go away real quick. Yeah. So it's a mess. It's not going to be yeah. an easy situation to fill in a competitive team for next year, considering the $38 million that you're paying John Wall are going to be for somebody who probably doesn't play a minute next year. Yeah. So that's where it gets interesting. Most GMs, I imagine, if they walk into that spot, want to have free reign to tear down if they see fit. And a teardown won't be pretty because a teardown probably involves trading Bradley Beal for maximum assets yeah. and going into the tank for a couple years, knowing that with John Wall out, you can only be so competitive with that contract. That's true. That's so true. Uh, that's where it gets interesting to me. What is sort of the edict from the top that this is our goal and we want somebody who will work along those goals? Or is Ted willing to step back and say the search firm just is going to suggest who they think the best candidate is? I accept that and I will let that person do what they believe is the best for this organization long term. I think that's going to be the fundamental question 
that every other domino falls afterwards from. And that's what's interesting here. I think the the next biggest question, uh, once you get your search for the GM going, once you get another GM, what does the future hold for Scott Brooks' head coach? That will also be a potential domino. Because a lot of GMs, and this this is all sports, just like a coach in the NFL, they want to have their guy at quarterback. Yeah. A lot of GMs want to be able to handpick and have their coach as their guy. A lot of people don't like to inherit head coaches or even rosters for that matter. But more importantly, the head coach. So it, it the trickle down effect. I think the biggest thing for me once you have someone in place. What is their philosophy? Not only, like you mentioned, on how you want to build a team, rebuild it, tear it down to the studs, and or whatever you want to do, trade assets to try to get cap room. What is their philosophy? What's their take on Scott Brooks? Is Scott Brooks their kind of coach? Or do they have other folks in mind that they would have connections to that they would much feel much more comfortable bringing in and don't necessarily want to ride with Scott Brooks in, in whatever direction they see this team going in. Yeah, that will definitely be one of the potential questions or dominoes that could be impacted. I will just say I find it interesting because how often do you see when you know a team has a lackluster season that falls well below expectations, normally the first guy to go is the coach. The coach, yeah. And that didn't happen here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that is a sign that Ted doesn't necessarily think Scott did a poor job or that Scott Mm -hmm. has done poorly as head coach in his three years is here. I think, you know, the answer we got was he believed it had to do with higher up and what was going on with the building of the team and the foundational pieces that were given to Scott Brooks to work with. Mm -hmm. Um, So, again, you know, I don't know about what's going to happen on this. I don't know if Ted might... You know, whoever he hires, say, I think we should have Scott still on board. I want to keep Scott. Like, you two should work together. Or if, once again, he's just going to be willing to step away and give whoever the new general man or president of operations is just full reign to make that decision. Uh, But I do think it's interesting that this wasn't a full cleaning house. There was one guy who was clearly given the responsibility for the pitfalls of this year. But you, you, you can also look at it from the perspective that. Maybe that had to be the first move to be made. Maybe that was the most. Maybe he wants to clear out Brooks and other pieces. But and I like the fact that he went up top first so many times. Like you said, the first shooter drop is always the head coach. And in a lot of situations, whether it be Jason Kidd or Mark Jackson, some of these people that get fired. Uh, it, it's not necessarily their fault, but they most times, nine times out of the ten, the head coach is the scapegoat. In this situation, he went above and, and rooted out what he thought was a problem in Ernie. Not to say that he might he, he might love Brooks, or he might think that Ernie was the bigger problem at this moment and may deal with Brooks on a later date, depending on who he has to fill that GM spot. Yeah, uh, that'll be that'll be an interesting decision. I just I find this to be a very interesting time because obviously the pulse of this town and everything that, you know, I see on Twitter and I I see how people reacted to the news. You got the whole sense of the city had a deep exhale, said their hallelujahs, (laughs) did their dance, whatever it is. The important thing for everyone to remember is, though, that this doesn't fix things. This is just a. 
This is the start to a new future. This is the start to change. But there's a lot of things that have to go right going forward for this mm-hmm. Wizards team to get back into contention because the reality of the situation, like I met, uh, they're in a salary cap dumpster fire right now, uh, and there is not yeah. an easy way of getting out of it. But the, and then you, you look, fans will say, well, who did it? Yeah, and that's why Ernie. Ernie that's why it. Ernie's gone. <laughs> Ernie but, did it. But you know, the person who comes in next, just because they're not Ernie, doesn't mean they're going to have an easy job fixing it. Oh no! And that's no. I think and, the one thing no, that fans no have to be ready that. for. Yeah, they, they, fans need to also be realistic in that fact that yes, we're excited Ernie is gone because we've been belabored by Ernie for for 16 years, and it's probably way overdue in a lot of people's minds. And yeah, you're going to have your celebrations and your exhales and all of that. But yet. Reality will set in that in his wake, yes, Ernie is gone, but he didn't take all of that mess with him. He just packed a box and left the building. The mess he created with the cap and how the roster is constructed is still there. That big steaming pile that he left for someone else to deal with is still there. So, yes, you can rejoice that he is is gone like I have, but I also know that, like you mentioned, that 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 pile he left is going to be there, and someone is going to have to come clean it up. And we have to hope that the person is capable of cleaning up what Ernie has done, because he has put this team in a bind. And we have spoken about it before uh, on other episodes of the show. He has put, like you say, he has put them in cap hell, and you're going to have to net, you're going to have to have someone financially cap savvy. You're going to have to have have someone who is also savvy on building a roster to bring in talent that you don't have to... It's going to be some money ball involved here that you're not going to have to pay a lot of money to try to be competitive or get some guys in that you think can develop along the way that won't cost you much because you don't have much to pay. Well, when the new person is named, you know we'll be right on top of it here. Let's move to uh, men's NCAA Final Four. Virginia still in the mix here against Auburn. And then the later game on Saturday, Texas Tech and Michigan State. What do you guys think of the Final Four? I hedged when we spoke about it the last time. I, I picked Virginia and Michigan. So, Michigan's gone. So, I'm, of course, I'm riding with Virginia. <laughs> but I, I think this will be – This is, and we talked about this before we came on air, Dimitri. This is not a sexy – Final Four. This is this is not for the people that love to see the blue bloods, your 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 Dukes, your Kentuckys, your North Carolina, Kansas, and on and on. You have, and I like to see Auburn and Texas Tech in the first Final Fours. It's not going to. If you like scoring, this is not for you. Yep. If you are a basketball purist, you like fundamentals, you like defense. You're going to love this Final Four. It's going to be for you because I don't think you're going to see too many games, including the National Championship game, maybe over 65 or 70. If somebody goes 80 points, you know, they just went off because these teams, three of them, is their calling card. Virginia, we know how they play defense. Michigan State is gritty how they play defense. Like I told Dimitri, that was my first time really, that Gonzaga game, sitting down and watching the entire Texas Tech game. And as soon as you put the ball on the floor, they're on it. It's it, it's like you, you you throw some meat in the piranha tank, and as soon as it hits the water, the boys is, is at it. What Auburn brings that may be an advantage 
is their bench. They seem to be deeper than everybody else. They outscored North Carolina's bench 40-21. to they're, they're, Their last game, they lead eight. Their starter started 0-7. Bruce Pearl has no problem bringing in four new fresh guys and to, to get it started, and that's what they did. So they, even if they are not up to par defensively like the other three teams, they bring depth and scoring with them as well. The Michigan State-Texas Tech matchup, I don't think there's any real intriguing matchup or intriguing key to the game to focus on. Like yeah. I just think those are two gritty, tough-nosed teams. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be as simple as whoever shoots the ball better, turns it over fewer times, is probably going to win that game. I I don't think there's – the Virginia-Auburn matchup has a lot of question marks in it. Mm -hmm. Because start off with just – we saw it with Auburn against Kentucky – uh, Auburn lost Okiki for the year. They're yeah. already a little undersized to yes. begin with. Yeah. They really struggled to both defend the paint and to, you know, get control of defensive rebounds. Kentucky almost won that game without having to hit a jumper outside the paint basically yeah. the whole day because they couldn't hit anything. And they almost were able to win scoring in twos, and Auburn was able to mostly win because they scored in threes and parts of the game. But Virginia Um, shoots the three at a very high percentage. That's the thing. You're not going to get that off shooting night more than likely uh, out of UVA. But if you're Auburn, are you able to speed them up in a way that's going to make them a little uncomfortable because UVA does such a good job of playing at one pace and it's the slowest pace in America. Uh, But there have been a few times in high pressure situations where teams have succeeded at speeding them up and things have gone awry. You think of uh, the time 2016, Elite Eight against Syracuse. They have that game won. Syracuse goes to a full-court press with about nine minutes to go, and they completely came unraveled Mm -hmm. once they fell out of their pace. Uh, The one thing that I think differentiates this UVA team, though, from all the ones we've seen in the past, is Kihei Clark, uh, the short little freshman point guard, because... The one thing, when we, sued, when we see them lose to UMBC a year ago in the first round, should have never happened. It was fluky. Mm-hmm. But what was the one little kryptonite? Was they, they have big, taller guards, but they didn't really have a guy who could keep a small, quick guy off the point out of the paint. Jared exactly. Harper is that guy for Auburn. Yes. Can Kihei Clark keep Jared Harper out of there is sort of the biggest question mark yeah. in this game to me. Because if Kihei can uh, frustrate Jared Harper, make his life difficult. I don't see how Auburn wins the game. Yeah, and that was, I was going to, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was another thing with Auburn is that when you said speed up UVA, Auburn, yes, they're undersized, but they're also undersized at the guard position. And fast. But, and fast. And see that it works to their, their advantage. And now that you brought that up, that will be an interesting thing if Clark can counteract what Auburn does because their backcourt, yeah, they're, they're diminutive in height. But they're fast as hell, yeah. and if you and you you seen you saw it against North Carolina. North Carolina had bigger guards; they had size. They uh, were were bigger than them in the backcourt, but they were able to speed them up. And if they're able to do that against UVA, then they've got a shot. But like you said, if UV is able to counteract that with their own smaller, quicker, faster guard that can keep up with these guys, then it it shouldn't be a, a a problem. And they never had that guy before and now that they have Kihei Clark, I think yeah. I think that's sort of I believe and I you know I 
have UVA winning it all. I thought that that was the final puzzle piece when I saw them at the beginning of the year, Mm -hmm. that that could get them over the hump. Uh, But it's going to be interesting. And honestly, since this tournament so far has the feel of a UVA redemption tour, to me, (laughs) nothing would be better than UVA-Michigan State in the championship when you consider that Michigan State knocked them out in 2014 in Madison Square Garden Mm -hmm. when UVA was a one seed. In 2015, in a 2-7 matchup, Michigan State knocked them out in the second round. If they're going to do the redemption tour, might as well have to go through Izzo well, and that, finally get over that hump to do it. Yeah, that, that was my that's my pick for Monday is Michigan State, Virginia, and Michigan winning it all. I think it's they'll be intriguing games because it, I don't think you'll see anything different from the elite the eight, which was fantastic basketball. You don't you, we haven't seen a whole elite eight or anything like that for quite a long time with no blowouts. Everything was competitive down to the last minute, last seconds. I think the way these teams play with the defense, it, and, and there a lot of them are very closely matched. You'll see that, and you, you might see two, you know, bar, not brown burner, what am I talking about? <laughs> two nail-biter kind of games sure. that will come down to a final shot, a final possession, a final fa- Whatever it's, it's going to be, I don't think the Final Four disappoints at all from what we saw in the Elite Eight last week. And I think that continues. It's not going to be as high-scoring, and it might not be as exciting. It'll be high-intensity, though. Yeah, it will. It would definitely be high intensity, and that will make up for, you know, the lack of of fantastic plays and, and highlight dunks or whatever else that you love to see from Zion and everybody else. You're not going to see that here, but you're going to have, you're going to get good basketball. And I get I get UVA taking it on Monday. Oh, really? Yeah. Not, not Michigan State. No, I got UVA. UVA okay. I got UVA Michigan State Monday, and I've got UVA taking that. Believe Brands. All right. Well, all three of only, us. Then. Yeah. Only difference I have: I have Texas Tech beating Michigan State. Okay. Oh, you do. Uh, okay. Interesting. I-, I want Michigan State to be there just for the storylines. Right. There's no UVA Texas Tech storyline. No. Uh, but it's, <laughs> you know, Texas Tech. I think they are really just more complete than Michigan State. Uh, I think they have more offensive weapons than people give them credit for. Mm-hmm. And I think that everybody talks about UVA's defense, but Texas Tech, I think, has the best defense in the country. I'll, I'll agree with it. They're, they're feisty and they're pesky. And they're long. But I would Michigan State has experience that comes with this. You have, a Hall, you have a Hall of Fame coach that comes along with, with this. And... As great a season as it's been so far for Texas Tech, Michigan State and Izzo have seen it all. And I just give it's some of these games where you have a team that's gotten it for the first time. Not to say they're going to come out and, and just be overwhelmed, but it's a possibility. You've never been this far before. There's this old hat for Tom Izzo in, in, in this program. So I just think that. Yes, it's going to be a good game, but I think that edge of experience and the edge in coaching that Tom Izzo has, I think that that puts them over the hump. I guess the only place I would disagree is everybody knows Tom Izzo. True. I don't think they have an edge in coaching. I think Chris Beard is the real deal. I think that Chris Beard, the only reason we don't talk about him more is because this is his first time here. Okay. But I think we need to get used to him being here because if you look at what he's done at Texas Tech in – Three years. Mm-hmm. We never, we never thought of Texas Tech as an Elite Eight caliber program. Very true. 
and they've now done an Elite Eight and a Final Four in back-to-back years. Chris Beard is the real deal. Uh, well, I would be the old fart and stick with, <laughs> I stick with old man until the, the, the young guy unseats him. All right. Fair enough. We'll, we'll be watching Saturday. We'll finish up with a couple minutes on baseball. Bryce Harper had better get used to hearing boos anytime he's in a public uh, position here at Nats Park. That's one thing we know. Trey Turner is hurt. That's pretty terrible for Nats fans. Uh, as we speak this afternoon, the Nationals are actually leading the Phillies 6-4, to four, top of the sixth. But it was a really tough Tuesday night I at Nats Park. It was, Bryce, it was a terrible Bryce, experience. The way the evening went. Bryce will take that. He'll take it. If it means he, they end up playing like they did, he'll take those boos. The bigger thing for me is Trey Turner getting hurt, but bigger than that, this bullpen is still garbage. And talking, we were talking about GMs earlier. And on the contrary, I think, rather than what I think about Ernie, I think Rizzo was very competent, and he's a very good GM. But for some reason, he's made a lot of moves, and he's done a lot to build this. This team is very good, even without Bryce. But once again, your bullpen is horrendous. Eight and one-third innings, they've given this is what This is game five today. So, as of last night, eight and one-third innings, 19 hits, 14 runs. It's four games for your relievers. Now, I don't know what it's going to take. I mean, I know Coda Glover is in the process of coming back at some point. Their bats have started off slow again. Howie Kendrick is coming back soon. I think Michael A. Taylor will start uh, uh, a, a rehab or somewhere with, with – the AAA or whoever, he'll do one of those. But they've the, the the bullpen is terrible, especially when Max does what he can, and your bats are not consistent yet. But your bullpen, and then he's pulling him in the fifth to have someone else bunt. Max can bunt, and then you've got your Rosenthal and everybody else that just sip whoever and just falls apart. And it's been like that for many years. So. Just as like a throw-ahead statement for me, with baseball, I am always the person who says it's baseball, it's a long year, True. and don't press the panic button, and then typically I'm too late to the panic button. <laughs> <laughs> like last year, I was confident the Nationals were going to win the division until about August 15th, and I probably should have been a little more worried in like June. Mm. Um, but... In this case, I'm not willing to panic on the bullpen just quite yet. It's been five games. Weird things happen in five-game stretches in baseball. Um, you know, for me, the only thing I've taken away from the Nats season so far is it's not a good thing. There's no way to positively frame that you've had two Max Scherzer home starts yes. and you're 0-2. Yeah. And those were both against divisional teams. That's mm-hmm. the only thing that I feel bad about early in the season is that you can't be wasting Scherzer starts at home yeah. against divisional opponents. That's huge because you, you run support. And we've seen this before last season. We, we've Max has had a lot of good games squandered because he had zero run support. And great games. What He had 12 Ks opening day. So you can't, I agree, you can't waste that. I think when it comes to the bullpen, people, it's jumping out at them so much because it's been an issue. 
I'm you know so, what I'm I'm, it, 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 it's been there, and it, we have uh, we we tinker with it, and then you know we we think we've got the we've got the formula, and then it's the same stuff, and then to fourteen that's a lot of runs in a very short amount of time. That on top of people already are on edge about the bullpen period, that doesn't help. I'm honestly sensing from just the Nats fan base, and again, I only I only get this from like Twitter and you know people I follow who are fans and stuff like that. I'm just getting a sense early on in this season that we are a little bit broken is a fan base. We've been broken by the fact that we never got over the hump with Bryce. Mm-hmm. Bryce then left us, and in his, our last year with Bryce, we were supposed to run away with the division, and we, and we came up right. short. And I'm just getting this sense early on that like everybody's a little more on edge than you would expect yeah. for like April 3rd. It's very, it's very a, early. It's yeah. a 162-game season, right. and like even after the first series of the year, like people... You know, you know what you just said about the bullpen. You're not the first person I've like heard yeah. feel that way. Like right. a lot of people are like, "It's our bullpen again. It's our bullpen again." And I'm just like, "Whoa!" Like we're we're three games into this True. thing. We might be. Let's just let's just uh, let's Pump just cool down and see what's going to go on. But then for it also to be Bryce thrown back in our face so early, he goes three for five with right. a home run and three RBIs. And a bad flip. I just feel like there's a lot of angst that has built up it's over. True. All of that. And I, I wonder how much of it wouldn't exist had Bryce just signed with the Dodgers or signed with the Giants. Oh, but none the fact of it, that he signed with the Phillies, we're just all wound up now. Well, when we, we spoke about this when it happened, and that's how I felt. For me, if you go to the Dodgers, the Padres, uh, Cubs, I don't care. San Francisco, whoever it may be. I tip my hat. Good luck. Thank you for everything you've done. But it you decided to stand in opposition of us for the next 13 years. It could be the duration of the rest of your career. Yeah. In the division with what is now this is a legit rivalry. For over the last couple of years, this is early on when we first got the Nets here. Ryan Howard and, and those those guys were Hamels. They were still here. They were still playing playing well. So they. Beat ass, but over the years, well, with seventy-five and fifty-five against them over since twenty twelve, something like that. Since Bryce came up, exactly, because that's the thing. Bryce came up into the Nationals overtaking the Phillies. Exactly. It was his rookie year where we got over the hump, and now he jumps back over there, and now they think. That's going to put them back over the hump to get back in control because Philly was in control of this division for a very long yeah, time until the Nats came and took it away, and then they went into a exactly. rebuild. And yeah, no, and, now, for sure. and now they're like, okay, we got your guy. Now we're going to jump back in, in the driver's seat, and the Nats are like, damn man, you could have went anywhere else, anywhere. But now we've got a legit rivalry. We've had one. You know, they you come and take over our park, and we had the whole Take Back the Park campaign and all that. Now they've taken our beloved Bryce Harper. And, yeah, that, that hurts. So, yeah, it, that does add to it. But I think I don't feel the bullpen bothers me. But when I look elsewhere, I don't feel too bad. Because when I see glimpses of what Robles has done so far, Juan Soto three-run homer this afternoon. I see those guys, Michael A. Taylor will come back. Dozier in, in, in spurts. 
Rendon, everybody hasn't really gotten started, but when I look at the lineup, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm good with this. I look at Corbin, Scherzer, okay, I can deal with this. When I look at the bullpen, that's outside of Doolittle. That's what gives me the oh Jesus a little indigestion. Yeah, <laughs> but the rest of it, I, I'm not, I'm not down on that because I still think they haven't even started to really scratch the surface of how good they can be. I think their their bats will get better. It'll come. They'll be able to give run support when needed. I think Robles and Soto could break out at any time, either either separately or together. And they they have a lot of talent, even if we're we're missing Trey Turner for some time. I'm not worried about that. But then that that's sort of where my question would come in because like if we're willing to be patient with the bats, we're willing to be patient with Strasburg. He had a rough first start, right? You know, is the reason people aren't feeling that way with the bullpen because we've had past bullpen failures, or because people don't believe these guys are talented enough? I think it's a past bullpen failures. I I I am not basing it on the talent of the guys we have right now. I'm just looking at it as a unit and an issue we've had problems with on down the line going back seasons. And it's just it's it's glaring again and with losing Bryce and people not we're not coming out like gangbusters right away that you say, okay, well we'll be fine without them, then you start to look at the damn bullpen again. And that becomes more of a, a, a glaring thing. Then I don't think it's it's actually people are on individual guys. It's the unit, and I think that's been an issue before, and it sticks out even more now that you lose Bryce, and we haven't had, you know, Rendon take over. Somebody just step firmly into that spot, and we can say that's the guy or these guys. That's that's where we're going right now. It'll come. I have confidence that it will come, but it hasn't. And those fourteen runs stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah, they definitely do. Brian, what are you writing these days at uh, Wizards Radio twenty four seven? Anything interesting we should check out? Uh, well, I mean, we'll be with the season just a few games left. Uh, we'll be starting to do. We've already started some player features, sort of recapping certain guys' seasons. We've got a good feature on Thomas Bryant up right now, uh, and you know, with Thomas Bryant, the feature mostly was just about how in the NBA, just one game can turn the perception around a player completely around. Mm-hmm. And you go back to that triple overtime game in December when Bryant had just fantastic overtime periods, finished that game with 31 and 13. Like from that game on, it went from Thomas Bryant. Who is this guy? Should we be giving him a chance to like? We need to re-sign Thomas Bryant in the offseason. I had been it happens in on quick. him early since summer league, and I really wanted I wanted to see him. Seeing him and and Troy Troy Brown bouncing back and forth from the go go was it was horrible to me. But with Dwight going down, Brooks had no choice but to put Bryant in there. When he did, and he got comfortable. He developed into the player we have now. So I, I saw a lot from him when they got him from the Lakers in summer league. I was like, okay, this this kid's got something. But then he didn't play. He didn't play. He didn't play. Then Dwight goes down, and you put him in the lineup, and you see the difference. 
Yeah, and so you know he's one of the guys we got to feature on. We just we're going to be working on a Troy Brown. Uh, just did a Jabari Parker feature yesterday. Uh, I guess the main things that I'm going to be trying to do as we hit this is address the concerns of what are the directions that the Wizards can go in, what are the difficult decisions that they have to make, who should be the guys that you prioritize bringing back, mm-hmm. and who are the guys that maybe you have to be willing to let walk. Because the fact of the matter is the Wizards have seven, eight free agents on yeah. this team. They're not going to be able to sign all of them. Realistically, they're probably only going to be able to re-sign two to three of them. Mm. So you sort of have to figure out at what prices do we value these people uh, and who are the guys we prioritize over others. And that's those are going to be the interesting questions. But now that there's also a GM search, uh, that content will be writing itself for us. Absolutely. I was going to say, if, you, right. if, if there's even an inkling of uh, you know a whisper of some GM news, Absolutely. that's where we'll catch it. Brian, thanks for coming in. We thanks, appreciate, appreciate it. having you again on the podcast. It. Always enjoy coming all with you guys. Wizards Radio 24-7 host Brian Albin. The DMV Sports Roundtable is on Apple Podcasts, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, and WTOP's mobile app. All you have to do is tap listen. For Jamal, I'm Dimitri. And for Redskins fans, large and small, all around the world, God help us.